The greatest spiritual danger to the Christian church today comes not from outside the church, but from within the church itself. Some of Satan's chief ambassadors are church leaders and pastors who preach not a different religion, but a pernicious perversion of the true one. Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, verses 15 through 16, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Now, there are actually several different types of false teachers that Christians need to be on guard against in the church today. So here are seven types of false teachers in the church today. And I got the names for these seven types from an article I recently read by a guy named Tim Challies. So give him the credit. Number one, the heretic. The heretic is the guy Peter warns about in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, who secretly brings destructive heresies into the church. Uh, blatantly contradicting or adding to or taking away from the teaching of Scripture, leading people astray. Uh, This was Arius in the fourth century AD who denied the deity of Jesus. This is the Jehovah's Witnesses who literally changed the wording of the biblical text to conform to their own doctrines. And this is the Mormons who add to the teaching of Scripture and reformulate virtually every biblical doctrine. Number two, the charlatan. The charlatan is the guy Paul warns about in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, who uses Christianity and gullible Christians as a means for personal gain and to fill his own wallet. This was the Catholic Pope Leo X who commissioned the selling of indulgences, which Pastor Dan talked about a couple weeks ago. And this is the televangelists on TBN who will send you a prayer cloth or miracle water or who will ask you to to uh, deposit a faith seed of some large amount of money promising financial prosperity or physical healing or spiritual power in return. This is Benny Hinn, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, Robert Tilton, Creflo Dollar, John Hagee, Jesse Duplantis, Joel Osteen, Joseph Prince, our own president's spiritual advisor, Paula White, and others, all peddlers of a false prosperity gospel, which has made them all multimillionaires. Number three, the prophet. The prophet is the guy John warns about in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, and Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 through 19, who is a false prophet claiming to speak new revelation from God. This was Montanus in the second century AD who claimed to speak on behalf of the Holy Spirit. And this is Joseph Smith who claimed to receive the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ from the angel Moroni. And this is... Sarah Young, who wrote the insanely popular book, Jesus Calling, which, and I want to talk about this just for a second because it is so popular. Firstly, was directly influenced by another book called God Calling, which she references in her earliest editions of Jesus Calling, which was written by two occult practicing psychics who claimed that God wrote the words of their book through them while they weren't even conscious of what they were writing. Secondly, Sarah Young claims that she received the very words of her book through her own personal communications with God in her heart, which were so frequent and significant that she thought that obviously these were meant to be compiled into a book and shared with everyone. But that raises a few questions like, how did Sarah exactly discern what those inaudibly spoken words in her heart were? And does this not clearly call the sufficiency of the book we already have into question? And if this is all true, does Jesus' calling differ from Scripture at all? And is it not just another testament of Jesus Christ, like the Book of Mormon claims to be? And thirdly, Jesus' calling is even written from the first-person perspective of Jesus himself, as though Jesus actually breathed out the words of the book, which leaves us with one of two options for interpretation. Either, number one, Jesus really is giving us new revelation through Sarah Young, 
which her publishers keep revising with every new edition. Or number two, Sarah Young is putting her own words into Jesus' mouth, which is to give false prophecy. And so, even if the content of the book was theologically sound, how Sarah presents it as being the words of Jesus and how Sarah claims it came about as having received the very words through her own personal communications with God and how Sarah was directly influenced for her book by the two occult practicing psychics who made the same claims about their book. Basically, every claim and suggestion and assumption undergirding the book is deeply troubling and seems to put Sarah Young into the category of false prophet, regardless of her intentions, because you don't have to know you're a false prophet to be a false prophet. Okay. Number four, the abuser. The abuser is the guy Jude warns about in Jude chapter one, verse four, who uses his position in leadership to take advantage of people. Maybe a guy who counsels a wounded woman and gains access into her feelings and emotions and into her life and into her home and eventually into her bed. This was the Children of God cult, which today is called the Family International, uh, who once evangelized potential converts by a method that they called flirty fishing, which involved sexual intercourse, even with minors, and who today claim they've reformed but still practice all kinds of sexual perversion in the name of God's love and higher spirituality. And this is the church leaders and priests and pastors today who more often than we'd like to believe get caught in adultery or some form of sexual abuse. And number five, the divider. The divider is the guy Jude warns about in Jude chapter one, verses 18 through 21, who causes divisions and not unity in the church. This is the guy who tries to undermine the church leadership in some way, maybe over a very minor theological issue or maybe over some completely unbiblical doctrine. And as a result, the unity among the church fractures and some people even leave. Number six, the tickler. The tickler is the guy Paul warns about in 2 Timothy chapter four, verses three through four, who desires to please men more than God and who tickles the people's itching ears by telling them only what they want to hear and not what God's word actually says. And again, I've gotta give this one to Joel Osteen and the prosperity gospel preachers, the ones who speak only personal success, self-help, Oprah-style motivational messages that are devoid of any real substance or gospel power which says just as much about their followers and what they're wanting to hear as it does about them. And number seven, the speculator. The speculator is the guy the author of Hebrews warns about in Hebrews chapter 13 verse nine who claims to have secret spiritual knowledge and who carries hearers away by unique and strange teachings rather than orthodox teachings. This is for example, every obsessive doomsday weirdo who tries to find hidden messages and secret codes in scripture and who writes books with strange titles such as Four Blood Moons and Trump Apocalypse and who unsuccessfully predicts the second coming of Christ and the end of the world while ignoring Jesus' own words that no one knows the day or the hour and yet somehow still manages to write and sell more and more books which make more and more failed predictions. And so there are plenty of different types of false teachers in the church today, but notice that all of them claim to be Christian and they often look like Christians and they often talk like Christians and they seem very religious and spiritual, and they often become very popular and gain a large following, but they preach perversions of the truth and the gospel, and they do this all 
from within the church. And tragically, these same types of people have been in the church and around the people of God for thousands of years. And in the Old Testament book of Amos, which we're gonna look at this morning, the prophet Amos confronts them with the word of God and accuses them of having rejected that word and condemns them for having substituted God's word for their own word. So we're gonna look at the Old Testament book of Amos. Before we do, let's pray and ask God just to bless our time here this morning. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word. Lord, your word is truth and it is life and it is light which exposes those things that lurk and hide in the darkness of our hearts, but also guides and directs us in the way that we should go. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come now and accomplish what you desire through the preaching and hearing of your word. So Lord, please expose and convict, but also guide and direct now as well. Amen. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Amos. It is sandwiched right in between Joel and Obadiah, book of Amos. And just to refresh our memories to bring us into the context of the book of Amos, recall that the nation of Israel split in 931 BC into a northern kingdom called Israel, 10 tribes under King Jeroboam, and a southern kingdom called Judah two tribes under King Rehoboam. And both these kings, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they were ungodly kings. And as a result, both of their kingdoms degenerated into more and more corruption. And Jeroboam even set up a a couple golden calves in Israel so that the people wouldn't travel down to the temple in Jerusalem, in Judah, to worship. Uh, But during this time, God, in his grace, raised up prophets to call his people to repentance and to return to him and to his word. But the prophet's words fell on deaf ears, and in 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered and exiled the people of Israel, and in 586 BC, the Babylonians conquered and exiled the people of Judah. And Amos was one of these prophets that God sent specifically to the northern kingdom of Israel about 200 years after the split in 931 BC, uh, but a few decades before the Assyrian invasion in 722 BC. And we learn in the opening verse of Amos that all this is taking place during the reign of King Jeroboam II, who reigned about 200 years after Jeroboam I, the Jeroboam we just talked about. And during the reign of Jeroboam II, Israel was booming in economic prosperity. Things were pretty cushy in Israel, where walking into Israel might have felt like walking into Joel Osteen's megachurch in Houston, Texas, with its massive size and opulent appearance, and where 50,000 people attend every week, and where it seems that God's hand of blessing must be upon them. And the Israelites thought the same thing. Man, things are good around here. God's hand of blessing must be all over us. And then Amos comes along. And what God has to say to Israel through Amos is not what the people were expecting to hear. And before we look at Amos' message, I want to point out just one more thing. It's a minor detail, but I think a very important one that's found in the first 11 words of the book. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. This minor detail is an important detail because it tells us that regardless of your occupation and regardless of your education and regardless of your position in the church, God may use you as he used the lowly shepherd Amos to bring his word to those who have forgotten it. Amen? And I love what Amos says in chapter 7, verses 14 through 15. We hear him explain what happened to him. He says, I was no prophet 
nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go, prophesy to my people Israel. You don't have to be an academic or a college grad with a Bible degree or a pastor in a church to know and understand and stand upon the word of God. But in a time like Amos's day, you do have to be courageous, especially if God calls you to speak in a significant way because in a time when God's people are busy blabbing away their own words, they're not in the position to even hear, let alone listen to God's words. And knowing this, God so brilliantly lures the people of Israel into a trap, like Nathan did with the, with, uh, the prophet Nathan did with King David. Here's what happens. The book begins with Amos saying in chapter one, verse two, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And then God launches into a tirade of judgments against Israel's pagan neighbors, the Syrians, the Philistines, the Phoenicians, the Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites. And God uses the same poetic expression to introduce judgment upon these nations, saying, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So, for example, in verse three, God says, for three transgressions of Damascus, which was the capital of Syria, I will, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then he tells them what they're being judged for, and God does this for each nation. And basically, this was a poetic way of showing that God was piling up their offenses. He's saying, it's not just that you sinned once, but you keep on sinning over and over and over and over and over, and now judgment is coming. God sees all sin. And God will judge all sin. Now imagine for a second that you're an ancient Israelite. And so this guy named Amos comes to your people claiming to have a prophetic message from the Lord and he starts calling down judgment upon these surrounding nations who historically have been your enemies. How would you respond? you'd probably start cheering and give a hip hip hooray after every judgment, right? Because finally justice is being served. And that's exactly what the people did. But then suddenly Amos pronounces the next judgment in chapter two, verses four and five, and it's on the southern kingdom of Judah. And this one hits a little closer to home because those are your brothers down there. Those are God's covenant people too. And then imagine how you'd feel when Amos pronounces the next judgment starting in verse six and going on for several chapters after that and the whole thing's against you. That's exactly what happens. God lures them in with their celebration of his judgment upon their enemies but then traps them when he reveals that they have become his enemies too. And God begins by reminding them of his dealings with them in the past. He says in chapter two, verses 10 and 11, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it indeed so, O people of Israel? And in chapter three, verse two, God says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. The Israelites were God's privileged, chosen, covenant people. How did they stray so far? Well, we're gonna answer that in a bit, but God details his judgment in chapters three through six in four parts, which are four oracles or four, four words from God. And so here are the four oracles of judgment given in Amos. Part one is an oracle of warning. Chapter three, where Amos warns Israel that judgment is coming. 
And in this chapter, God accuses his people of worshiping false gods. He says in verse 14, on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And these altars of Bethel were the golden calves that Jeroboam set up in Bethel after the split of Israel into northern and southern kingdoms. And part two is an oracle of doom, chapter four, where Amos begins to expound upon the sins of Israel. So first, God accuses his people of committing injustice. And in verse one, he calls them self-indulgent cows who oppress the poor and crush the needy always taking and consuming, but giving nothing. And then God accuses his people of being religious for religion's sake. And he says in verses four through five, come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel. You know you're in trouble when God says to you, go ahead, sin some more, and then gives you suggestions for how to go about doing so. It drips with an ominous and threatening sarcasm. And part three is an oracle of entreaty. Chapter five, verses one through 17, where Amos entreats or pleads with Israel to forsake their sinful ways and turn to God. So first, Amos laments over Israel's impending doom and announces a funeral for the nation in verse two, saying, fallen, no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. It's similar language to what we find in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, which says, why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you choose death over life under the lordship of God? But then in verses four and six, God says, yet even now, seek me and live. Seek me and live. But the people of Israel wouldn't listen. And part four is an oracle of woe. Chapter five, verse 18 through chapter six, verse 14, where Amos details the specific sins that have provoked Israel's funeral, which are number one, being religious for religion's sake, number two, committing injustice, and number three, being at ease in their spiritual condition. Uh, so God confronts their religiosity again in chapter five, verses 21 through 23, a little more straightforwardly this time, saying, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Can you imagine if one Sunday God came down to us here at Cedarholm and said, just stop. You're not singing to my glory. You're not praying for my glory. You're not tithing for my glory. You're not preaching for my glory. It's all fake. I hate this. I despise this. I wonder how many churches God is looking down upon right now thinking these very words. And God also reiterates their committing of injustice and says in chapter five, verse seven, that they turn justice to wormwood, which is a bitter, poisonous plant and cast down righteousness to the earth. 
And God rebukes them for being at ease in their spiritual condition, saying in chapter 6, verse 1, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria. In chapter 6, verses 4 through 5 says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. And then in chapter 7, there's a little narrative interlude which emphasizes the fact that Israel will not listen to God. In verse 10, a priest named Amaziah from Bethel, where the golden calves were being worshipped, he sent word to King Jeroboam saying this. He says, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words, which of course were the Lord's own words. And in verses 12 through 13, Amaziah says to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. Now you should know as in historical note that during this time in Israel, there were professional prophets, guys who actually made a living off of prophesying falsely that the king would hire to just tickle his ears, just tell him what he wanted to hear. And what Amaziah says to Amos here shows us that the people of Israel only wanted to hear the words of men, which were favorable, positive messages, rather than the words of God, which in this case were unfavorable, wrathful, turn away from your sin, kinds of messages. And God responds to the plugging of their ears by saying in chapter 8, verses 11 through 12, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In other words, because God's people were now worshiping their own voices, their feelings, their opinions, their judgments and loved to hear themselves talk so much that they decided that they would just start calling all the shots. God said, so be it. Now I asked earlier, how did Israel stray so far? And in the four oracles of judgment, we see some of the ways they strayed. They started worshiping false gods. They became religious for religion's sake. They started committing injustice and they stopped listening to God. But what specifically led to their downfall? What was the catalyst that set this whole thing off? Here's our first major point this morning. There is a sinfully deceptive voice inside every human heart There is a sinfully deceptive voice inside every human heart. Remember what happened in Genesis chapter three? After God had commanded Adam and Eve to not eat from the tree of knowledge and of good and evil, saying that in the day that they would eat of it, they would, they would surely die, even knowing that consequence, Adam and Eve listened to another voice. And whose voice? Well, the serpent's voice, of course, but also another voice. Look at Genesis chapter three, verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Question, 
What caused Eve to see the tree to be good for food when God had said, it is bad for you? And what caused the tree to become a delight to her eyes when God had said, it will be death to you? And what caused Eve to desire to have it, to make her wise, when God had said, I have given you and will give you everything you need? The serpent couldn't open her eyes because Eve didn't see the tree with her eyes. She saw the tree with her heart. It was a voice inside of Eve herself which John describes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 as the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. The desires of the flesh, it's good for food. And the desires of the eyes, its sight is delightful. And the pride of life, it will make me wise. What caused Israel to stray but they're listening to that little voice within them, always whispering, there's something better for you than what God's given you or could ever give you. God doesn't have your best interest in mind. You do. There's more pleasure over here. There's more wisdom over there. Do what you want to do. Follow your heart. You are the master of your own destiny. Who among us can honestly say that they haven't ever heard this little voice inside of them? It's always there inside all of us. And Israel wrongly believed that they could do just fine without clinging to God and to his word. They probably thought that since they were in the covenant community of God that they could never really stray too far and that ultimately they'd be all right. But I think Israel underestimated the power of that little voice within them which is always trying to turn us away from reality under the lordship of the sovereign God into our own little fantasy world where we think we rule as king and where we think we know what's best for us and where we think we can dictate the course of our life. And what this shows us about the human heart is that it doesn't naturally incline toward truth, righteousness, goodness, and obedience, but toward idolatry false righteousness, disguised sometimes by religiosity, injustice, and disobedience. This voice we're talking about inside of us right now, right now is seeking to turn us into heretics who believe only what they want to believe. Charlatans, who make personal gains at the expense of others. False prophets who have incredible manipulative powers over those who believe that they give new revelation from God. Abusers who use and control others. Dividers who selfishly do everything possible to get their own way. Ticklers who are the ultimate people pleasers and speculators who also have incredible manipulative powers claiming to have some kind of secret spiritual knowledge that other Christians do not have. Who among us can honestly say that they haven't felt any of these tendencies in their own flesh? We all have, and we all do. And when we do, what do we do? Second point. That inner voice is only silenced by a better word. That inner voice is only silenced by a better word. Let's go back to Amos chapter 8, verses 11 
through 12, where God says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. It's interesting to me that God's taking away of his words is described here as a famine because the Israelites understood famine and what famines were like, what it felt like to have their crops fail to produce a harvest and what it felt like to long for just a bite of food. And God says here, when I stop speaking, you will starve and you will long in desperation to hear my words once again. It reminds me of something Jesus said in the Judean wilderness where he had been fasting and praying for 40 days and where Satan tempted him to turn stones to bread. Remember what he said? He said, quoting Deuteronomy, that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And his whole point was that God's word is life. It's the word that created the universe, ex nihilo, out of nothing. It's the word that parted the Red Sea. It's the word that commanded manna and quail to fall from heaven. It's the word that shut up the wind and the waves and calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's the word that pierces our hearts and turns them from hardened stone to tender flesh by his grace. It's the word that creates, commands, guides, and directs. It's the word that grants knowledge and distills wisdom and reveals truth. It's the word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. To live in this world without this word is death. But to have it, to have it is abundant life. And according to the Bible, the fact that our bodies, the fact that our bodies need to be sustained by food and water each day is a reflection and picture of our need for spiritual sustenance, our need to be spiritually fed, our need for God's word, which is our daily bread. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread, Matthew 6, 11. It tells us that there is bread for today that we need. We need to hear from God today. And this absolutely means that just as it's possible to become physically malnourished from a lack of food and water, that it is possible to become spiritually starved from a lack of daily bread. Here's the point. When we hear that voice in our flesh begin to speak its words, we must silence it with a better word. Let me say that one more time. When we hear that voice in our flesh begin to speak its words, we must silence it with a better word. A word that is more true, life-giving, and satisfying than any other word we could possibly ever hear. Third point, that better word is ultimately a person. That better word is ultimately a person. It's no coincidence that Jesus, the incarnate word of God, called himself the bread of life and the living water of eternal life, saying, whoever comes to me will not hunger, John 6, 35, and whoever drinks of the water I will give to him will never thirst again, John 4, 14. Jesus is the food and drink that our spirit needs to live. And by God's grace, some people do sense this spiritual need. They sense their spiritual starvation and Jesus' gracious supply. But the scary thing is that while physical hunger and thirst is quickly sensed by our brains, 
Spiritual starvation is only sensed by one's spirit. And today, many people go about their lives not even sensing it because they're already dead. So, how exactly is this spiritual need sensed and met? The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ, which is the gospel. Let me read that verse one more time. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ, which is the gospel. This is why in every sermon, Pastor Dan and I preach here at Cedar Home. We want to speak and explain and apply the gospel because we know, we know that the gospel and the gospel alone is the power to change lives when it is heard and listened to and trusted. It's the message about who Jesus is, the Son of God and only Savior of the world and what he came to do, living, dying, rising for sin to reconcile those whose sin had separated them from the holy God to relationship with him. And that we can have him by repenting, turning away from our sin and trusting in him, in him alone, in all of his atoning work on our behalf for life and salvation. There is no other way. Apart from Jesus, we may wander from sea to sea, from north to east, and to and fro, but we will never find what our hearts are really searching for and really need. Now, in closing, I want to do what Amos did. Uh, I want to confront and address the seven types of false teachers in the church today, uh, but not with judgment. I want to confront and address them with the gospel. So, to the heretic, the gospel revealed and God's holy, inspired, inerrant word says that Jesus came to us to show us the only way to God, the absolute truth about God, and the abundant life of God so that we would not seek any other way. We would not look for any other life, any other truth. You will give people this word and this Jesus, or you will give them death. To the charlatan, the gospel says that Jesus, like the prince and the pauper, traded his royal robes of righteousness for your filthy rags of sin when he gave up his life, his very life, unto death on a cross, dying a death that you should have died to pay for all that your sin deserved. This message about how Jesus gave everything for us cannot be sold or peddled for money. To the false prophet, the gospel says that Jesus was not only a true prophet, but God's final prophet and final revelation to the world who lived, died, and rose for sin. The canon of scripture is closed, and there is no greater word than the incarnate word himself, the logos, the word who was there in the beginning with God and who was God. To the abuser, the gospel says that Jesus was wrongfully abused on your behalf to spare you from the rightful consequences of all that your sin deserved. You are not beyond repentance or salvation. Repent and turn to Jesus. To the divider, the gospel says that Jesus gave his life so that you who were once separated from God the Father and were a spiritual orphan might be adopted and brought into the family of God. So love and live in peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ for whom his blood was shed. To the tickler, the gospel says that it is precisely because Jesus sought to please God more than men that you have salvation in him and will never perish. Consider what you might be able to really offer others if you desire to please God more than them. And to the speculator, 
The gospel says that all we need to know is Christ in him crucified. That's straight out of the words, straight out of the mouth of Paul. I want to know Christ in him crucified, and that's it. All you need to know is Christ and him crucified. Why? Because this is the great mystery of God that has now been revealed. And there is nothing more important. Now there's one more thing I've left unsaid. The book of Amos is largely about God's universal judgment against all who have rejected him and his word. And uh, Amos chapter nine in the beginning, it says that, that judgment is certain. That judgment is inescapable. But the book of Amos ends with a note of hope as God says in chapter nine, verses 11 and 12, in that day, he's talking about the day of his judgment, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. What God is saying here is really amazing. He's saying that even though the northern kingdom of Israel has rejected the Davidic throne, the kingly line of Judah in the south through which the Messiah was to come, even though they've rejected the the Davidic throne, that God still intends to bless not just Israel, but all the nations and the entire world through that Messiah. Meaning, Judgment is coming, but so is salvation through one who will be judged for the sins of his people worldwide. And so the book of Amos ultimately points us forward to Jesus, showing him and his atoning death to be the divine and only solution to our problem of sin and what would otherwise be the certain and inescapable judgment that would befall us apart from him. And so, we must know him. And we must cling to his words revealed in scripture. I'm reminded of Psalm chapter one, which talks about the man who meditates on God's word day and night. And as a result, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. And he yields fruit in its season and his leaf doesn't wither. The man who clings to God's word is deeply rooted, won't bend, won't sway, and he receives so much refreshment and nourishment from that word that he knows that to leave, to listen to any other voice would be death, but that to stay is abundant life. And this is what the very last verse of Amos looks forward to, verse 15. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This final blessing was never fulfilled in the nation of Israel. And that's because it wasn't a promise for literal Israel or for the physical people of Abraham. It was a promise for spiritual Israel, for all God's people in Christ who will one day dwell together in that greater land, a new heavens and a new earth where they will be planted and rooted and will remain with Jesus forever. But today, and every day, there is a real war going on inside every human heart over whose voice will be listened to and whose word will be trusted. A battle, a war, we so often lose. But the great promise for all who have trusted in Jesus for life and salvation is that even when they stumble and fall, and fail, and wander, and stray, and sin against the God they love, their souls are still spoken for. Their souls are still spoken for, and that's because 
when in Jesus' final words upon that cross said, it is finished. Our sin, which cried out against us for judgment and hell, was silenced forever. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your life-giving word. Lord, your word which is light to the darkness in our hearts and like a mountain to stand upon in a world of so many words and thoughts and opinions and philosophies and ideologies that are all sinking sand. Lord, your word is like an anchor when we feel we are drifting away from you and Lord your word stands forever even as we along with life and nature pass away and Lord God I thank you that your word is not reserved for scholars or super spiritual Christians but for all your people and that we can all know it and understand it and stand upon it by your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes and gives us understanding and changes our heart's desires. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who in the stillness of their hearts may be hearing your Holy Spirit whispering to them now the wonderful truth about Jesus and his gracious supply to our spiritual need. And Lord, I pray for those here this morning who are listening to you once again, that they would rejoice and be glad and be refreshed by the truth of your word and by the gospel which has saved their soul. Oh Lord, may your word reign supreme in our hearts. God, silence every deceptive voice and whisper. It's only by your grace and power that we will hear and listen and follow. Amen.